Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. We're very thrilled, pleased, and excited to have you joining us this afternoon for the teleconference on overcoming issues with the prevailing wage determinations, which are also called as PWDs. Um, I have with me two of our brilliant Murthy Law Firm attorneys. The first is Pam Janice. She is a member of the Murthy Law Firm slash partner and has approximately 10 years of experience and a wealth of knowledge on a broad range of U.S. immigration law issues. For the last seven or eight years, she has been focusing almost exclusively or more or less exclusively in the area of PERM labor certification related issues and its complexities and nuances. We call her the queen of perm at the Murthy Law Firm. And since you don't get to meet us personally, as I was just sharing with both Jim and Pam, uh, we have to share our little nuances and our personal traits with you by teleconference. Our second attorney is Jim McLaughlin, who has been with us for a few years. He also has a focus in the PERM labor certification area at the Murthy Law Firm for the last few years. And besides his legal acumen and knowledge, which we're always proud to share with you as clients and potential clients, he is an incredibly smart guitar player with an artistic sound that I certainly cannot compete with. I am in awe and admiration of his musical and artistic talents and his emceeing abilities at our firm's annual dinners where he showcases his ability to join the different pieces of the puzzle. So without further ado, now that you know us both legally and on a personal basis, today's teleconference is focused on what, as you know, on prevailing wage determinations. And the prevailing wage determinations is one of the first steps that needs to be taken care of when an employer files a green card through the PERM process. Um, this is something you need to obtain as the employer in order to move on with the process and file the case because you are required to pay the prevailing wage determination for your employees and to commit to a salary that will either meet or will exceed the prevailing wage for the particular position in the particular geographic location as determined by the U.S. Department of Labor. So in today's teleconference, both Pam, Jim, and myself briefly with asking questions as the moderator, we will discuss some of the fundamentals of the prevailing wage request and current trends and provide you some guidance on how you can overcome problems or issues when you as an employer are seeking a prevailing wage determination during the green card process. So Jim, if I can just start with you, just give us a quick broad overview of what's the PWD or prevailing wage determination. Sure, thanks Sheila. Um, the prevailing wage determination is the first official step of the PERM labor certification green card process. 
It requires the employer to take their minimum requirements and their job duties that they've already drafted ahead of time, place this on the Form 9149, and submit it to the Department of Labor. The Department of Labor will then review what's on that 90, the 9141 and determine what is the prevailing wage determination, which happens to be the lowest minimum the employer must pay the beneficiary when they finally get their green card. Now, the Department of Labor, when they're determining what the proper prevailing wage is going to be, they're going to look at it one of three things, either a collective bargaining agreement, if one applies, if not, the Department of Labor's own database, the OES, or an employer can also submit an alternative wage survey. Okay. Well, that's certainly helpful. And for those of us who date ourselves back more than, you know, a, a long time ago, at one time, the Department of Labor would accept up to 90% of the prevailing wage, but that rule was changed a long time ago. And so if some some of you as employers or companies from who have been doing perms or labor certifications for 10, 15, 20 years ago would say, well, what about the 90% rule? Guess what? You can kiss it goodbye because the Department of Labor has kissed it goodbye a long time ago. So Pam, if we can jump to you about what are the considerations in preparing an effective, a good 9141. Thank you, Sheila. So the 9141, I like to think of it as the foundation for the entire rest of the case. It's the keystone of the labor certification process, but it's also going to come back at the I-140 stage where you have to prove that you have the ability to pay at least that wage from the time that the labor certification was filed all the way through the green card process. So it's important to take it very seriously. And when I talk about the prevailing wage determination at conferences and on teleconferences and with clients, I can't emphasize it enough. You need to take your time in preparing your position requirements, position details, because that's going to be what the Department of Labor bases their prevailing wage determination on. And that prevailing wage determination is going to affect everything else. So it's really important to spend the time to figure out the actual job title, minimum requirements, special requirements. Is there any testing required? Do you have a drug test requirement? Do you have background check requirements? What are the actual job duties? Does this position involve supervision? Are they supervising peers? Are they supervising subordinates? When you address all of that up front, it goes into your prevailing wage determination. And based on all of that information, the Department of Labor is going to decide the occupation classification and a wage level. And based on that, you're then going to figure out what your wage is. You're going to figure out if you have to um, deal with a combination of occupations, if there's any business necessity that you're going to have to address for the rest of this case. And keep in mind, your 9089 form, the actual labor certification, should mirror your 9141 prevailing wage determination. There shouldn't be anything in one that doesn't appear in the other. So when we talk about prevailing wages in the green card process, this is not the same thing that you have with H-1Bs. A lot of times people get confused about that. They don't understand why the occupation code doesn't match what was in the H-1B. They don't understand why the prevailing wage in the H-1B doesn't match the green card. Even though it may be the same position, you're dealing with a different way of evaluating it and a different way of coming up with the prevailing wage. And the primary difference is with the H-1B, the employer gets to direct what the prevailing wage is. They get to figure it out. Whereas with the green card, Department of Labor is the one that has the final say. If I'm the employer, Pam, and I want to know why should it exactly mirror each other with the 9089 and the 9141? 
Well, if the 9141 has something that is not in the labor certification, or if the labor certification has something that was not in the 9141, the Department of Labor can say, you did not obtain a valid prevailing wage determination, and then all the recruitment that you do is wasted because they could deny your case on that basis alone. Okay, thank you very much. So now let's look at the prevailing wage factors and start out if, start off, if you can, Jim, with you, uh, a little bit touching upon the occupation code because Pam just mentioned and said Department of Labor comes back and gives us the occupation code and the wage level. So let's get started with the occupation code. That's correct. That's one of the starting points for, for the prevailing wage determination is what's the accurate code for the position? Um, and what the Department of Labor is going to do is take your job duties, your title, any special requirements or skills that you require, and they're going to want to compare that to the ONET database. Um, you find that at onetonline.org. Now, one of the main things to remember is the ONET doesn't actually have wage data for every job that's listed on the ONET, um, which Pam will actually discuss in more detail. I mean, the thing about the ONET is it has some limitations on the occupations that are available. Some people who have done labor certifications for decades will remember back when you had the Dictionary of Occupational Titles. And in that case, you had a whole lot more options for identifying your occupation. When the Department of Labor switched to the ONET, they squished thousands and thousands of occupations into a smaller number of occupations. And then even of those occupations that are available, and they do sometimes add new occupations, they don't have wage data for that. So for example, uh, the ONET Online has an occupation classification for IT project manager, but there isn't any OES wage data for that, and so it doesn't appear as an option for prevailing wage determinations, even if you have a position that w that should fit into that occupation. It's you know, Pam, when you said years and years and years and years ago there was the Dictionary of Occupational Titles, or DOT, before the ONET came into being, and you looked in my direction, I did not appreciate that. <laughs> and so for those of you who can't see it, you saw me make a face at her, but she was busy talking with passion about her point. I remember the DOT too, okay? I remember traditional recruitment cases. So um, I miss the DOT. But, you know, the ONET is what we have now. And uh, with the ONET, um, in some cases, you have limited options that the Department of Labor can pick from. For example, you're dealing with a computer professional position, and you're trying to see which of these occupations it could fit in. The employer may think, okay, this is a computer systems analyst kind of position, but the Department of Labor could look at that position and say, no, I think this is more of a software developer. And so even though you can suggest it, you can you know, fight with them even, ultimately it's a discretionary decision and the Department of Labor gets to make that decision. They look at the job title, they look at the job duties, they even look at the kinds of experience requirements that you're looking for. And based on all of that, they make the decision which ONET code they think is most appropriate. Okay. So I just want to be sure, because I know I'm going to come back to you, Pam, for the combination of occupations. Uh, and maybe, Jim, uh, I was going to t ask you this, but maybe Pam's already briefly touched upon it, is what if the job title and the d job duties match more closely to a job which is lift, listed, but I don't know if we talked upon this in all other classifications in the OES. Can we use that as the employers in multiple 
uh, in, when, when requesting the prevailing wage determination? That's certainly a good, good question. But the general rule is that 99% of the time, the Department of Labor is going to want to specify the job code, and they don't care for the all, other, all other classifications. It's generally too broad for them. Um, you know, 1% of the time, they may give it to you, but that's in a few positions where they do have a little more detailed wage data and a more clarified job description. A lot of times we see this coming up in the computer occupations, all other, or in engineering's all other, because there are, you know, within that all other, there are more specific occupation codes. But because for some reason, Department of Labor doesn't feel that they have good enough wage data, they've repeatedly said that they're not going to use those occupations. Now, you can use that all other classification in your H-1B. You have that flexibility, but this is yet again one of those instances where in the green card, you don't have the same flexibility that you do in the H-1B. Okay, okay. And I think the example that we often try to quote because majority of the jobs that for which labor certifications are being filed, as we just learned from the very recent release of information by the Department of Labor with their PERM statistics information in the past few weeks, was that engineering is one of their favorite positions that they talk about. And so the example that we often give is that all other engineering types, uh, if you do that and put in the engineering all other, then it could include as we've discussed, it includes manufacturing, engineering, computer occupations, you know, mechanical, civil, all kinds of engineering, which then the Department of Labor thinks is way too broad and therefore cannot be effective in terms of them giving an accurate prevailing wage determination. And there's also, we should reference to the liaison minutes that ha that was there between the American Immigration Lawyers Association um, where the Department of Labor made it very clear that they would not give those all other classifications um, as much weight or, or consider them in the green card context uh, because they expect specificity in the job code, as Pam just explained. So, Pam, if we can now touch upon the combination of occupations because in today's evolving job market, we find that what existed as a job maybe a year ago might now have morphed into something a little bit different with, you know, mixing and matching a couple different tweaks and turns. So there are some... Uh, occupations that are clearly a combination of occupations that don't have uh, their own code. For example, you see it a lot with clinical professors, where you have someone who is acting as a professor and as a medical doctor at the same time. Um, that's a very common combination of occupations. But you also see it where the Department of Labor is looking at your job description and says, well, wait a minute. I This looks like a technical position, but it also looks like a managerial position. And if there isn't a clear uh, managerial role that you can f put them into, like a computer information systems manager or something like that, then what you can see is Department of Labor will say, this is a combination of uh, occupations. It's a combination of this classification and also a manager, general and operations manager. And the 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 problem there is that when you have a com there's two problems actually when you have a combination of occupations the first part is the Department of Labor assigns the higher of those two occupations. Well, of as course, the wage. they want the highest. They want to make sure that no U.S. worker is adversely affected. So you, as the employer, need to pay the much higher of the two wages. So when you start getting into positions that uh, have a greater de degree of supervision, um, that 
the Department of Labor doesn't think is normally involved in that position, you run the risk of, is this now becoming a manager slash sales engineer? And am I going to run into the combination of occupations problem? Okay. It's true. And the, the other problem that you'll see is if it is a combination, then there's a specific question on the 989, the PERM application, that you have to check yes if it is a combination of occupations. And the employer then has to be willing to prove that they normally employ persons for that combination or that they have a business necessity argument for employing someone with those specific job duties. Okay. And Bamban, you said there were two different issues. Were these the two issues that we were talking? That was the second one. I guess Jim was getting so excited he couldn't help himself. He had to you know, provide his insights. Well, and it's funny because what we've seen sometimes is where you challenge the Department of Labor on an occupation code that they've picked, where you say that it should be code A and they say it should be code B. Sometimes when you fight them on it, they'll come back and say, you know what, you're right. It does have parts of part A, of of code A and code B. Therefore, we think it's a combination of occupations Mm. and we're assigning the higher of the two wages, which is code B. (laughs) It's crazy. It's crazy. And it's a little bit like the cop and the thief that keep chasing each other or the dog and the cat. And (laughs) as employers and as attorneys, we constantly need to monitor um, all of these issues to protect you as an employer. And at the end of the day, we're all seeking justice. I mean, we are officers of the court as lawyers, and we like to do the right thing that we believe is in the best interests of our country. But the big picture at the end of the day is that we do need highly skilled foreign technology workers. And while the Department of Labor's mandate is to protect U.S. workers, as I valiantly stood up in front of um, the the chief certifying officer at one of the immigration law conferences in Washington, D.C., and said that we believe we are protecting U.S. workers in the U.S. market by ensuring that companies stay competitive and get the best workers so we don't export all our jobs outside of the United States, for which the certifying officer, um, I think, uh, Uh, with due respect, uh, disagreed with me, and we both said we must agree to disagree in that case. So, Pam, let's jump to the area of intended employment. What are roving employees and how do we deal with those? Well, this, again, is one of those really important (coughs) things to identify up front because what a person is paid as a software engineer in New York is not the same that they're paid in Nebraska. So um, when you're looking at the area of intended employment, there are a couple things that can come up. Uh, In some cases, it's very simple. You know exactly where they're working, and they're always going to be working, and that's your office, and you're going to file the labor certification based off of that. What becomes more tricky is where there are multiple multiple possible locations. It could be that you have more than one office, and this person is going to work in more than one office, in which case you need to specify that on your form. And it is possible to do that. If it's in the Like same- Pam, you do help with the Seattle-Washington <laughs> West Coast office, and you're in the East Coast office, so it's you would true. be a classic example. Yes. If, if we were- you were a foreign national. <laughs> if we were filing a labor certification application for me, we would have to list both our office in Owings Mills, Maryland, and in Bellevue, Washington on my labor certification form. But fortunately, I don't need to do that right now. Um, But for individuals who do, you need to indicate it with specificity. And the Department of Labor will issue a prevailing wage that... uh, prevailing wages for both of those separate places. And then you're going to need to commit to the higher of those on your actual 9089 form. The more interesting, I think, is when you are dealing with roving employees. 
um, individuals, especially in the consulting industry, where they could be going to a variety of unanticipated locations. And it could be short-term assignments, long-term assignments. And for that, the Department of Labor has a memo that is still in effect. Um, it's the I think 1994 Barbara Farmer memo that addresses roving employees. And for that, you use something called the headquarters rule. You file the prevailing wage based off of the headquarters, but you do indicate uh, in some fashion um, 100% travel or travel to unanticipated locations or travel and relocation may be required. There are a variety of ways that you can express it, but it needs to be clearly indicated. And based off of that, the Department of Labor will issue the prevailing wage determination on the headquarters location. And we have seen in the last two years where they've started adding language where they say, okay, this prevailing wage is only for the specific location that you've listed. We can't give wages for unanticipated locations. And when they started doing that, there was a lot of panic. Many people were very concerned. What does this mean for roving employees? But I remember at the 2013 AILA conference, they specifically addressed this and said, yes, we know that's what it says, but the Barbara Farmer memo is still in, in play, the headquarters rule is still good law, and that's what we should be doing our cases based on. Okay, good. Uh, it's always scary when the Department of La Labor plays fast and loose, and especially when we find right after the Great Recession or for a few years after that, which is still sort of ongoing, their attitude becomes even more tight than, let's say, when the economy, economy is chugging along and things are going great. You see trends in the way they react and respond to situations, which is always disturbing. So let's now go to the prevailing wage levels and how you know the Department of Labor's issuance of wage guidance. If you can discuss that a little bit, Jim. Sure, absolutely. The, uh, in 2009, the Department of Labor issued guidance on how adjudicators are supposed to determine the wage level um, for prevailing wage determinations, but it all boils down to what is normal from the Department of Labor's point of view. Um, the primary factors they're really looking at is education and experience requirements, and are they normal for the occupation? Are they on the low end of the scale? Um, or if they're not, they add points to it to the point where you'll look at, if you see, look at the ONET, you'll see that there will be four levels for wages, one through four. Um, you know, and depending on the minimum requirements you require, your wage is going to fall within that scale. Yeah, and so that's why when an employee comes knocking on your door and saying, employer, employer, if you don't give me B2, I'm going to go away to the competition or I need to leave because my green card is going to take 10 or 20 years, especially if the per employee was born in um, in actually any country because EB3 is backed up for almost every country in the world. Um, and EB2 is very, very heavily backed up for India and to some extent for China. Um, you, you as the employer need to say, well, maybe I love this employee and I'd love to keep them forever, but I need to be concerned about what's going to have to my PWD, to my prevailing wage determination, because the Department of Labor is going to look at the job and the job duties and the title and say, gee whiz, is this higher than what it's supposed to be? Why does this particular position require, for example, a master's in three years of experience or a bachelor's in five? You know, the, that, the fact that the education and experience appear to be greater than the job zone or the code that is generally assigned to that particular job title or those kinds of job duties that you had uh, listed for the position. And also the special skills. 
if there are special skills, if there are certifications, if there are licenses that are generally not required, then that's again a red flag as far as the Department of Labor is concerned for them to maybe raise the prevailing wage determination a notch or two or more. And and by the way, when I'm done with this uh, overview, both Pam and Jim can jump in and, 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 and are welcome to say what they need. And then, of course, what Pam just referred to, the travel requirements. If you have a lot of travel back and forth, uh, they are concerned because then you're not based in one location and you might be going to different locations. And while the Barbara Farmer memo from, you know, approximately 20 years ago is still uh, in effect, uh, the fact that there is a lot of travel required, the any reimbursements, et cetera, you can't include that in your wage because that is a reimbursement to stay in hotels or other places that sometimes and often the Department of Labor will, you know, make mention of that. And the supervisory duties, if they're not normally required for the occupation as defined by the ONET, and now you're throwing in, in the example that we gave before, where there's technical and supervisory job duties or managerial job duties, they're going to look at the higher wage level and slap slap it on as 100% managerial job duties, though you may say, hey, the managerial job duties are only 10 or 20% of the, of the job. And then again, as we refer to the unusual job duties, um, and, and the wonderful example that's here is like COBOL because it's outdated technology. So if you have something that's totally not in use today, they would take that into account and say, well, nobody knows this. So if you're doing this just to help this particular employee get the job, you know what? Nice try, employer. I'm going to stick it to you. Anything that Pam or Jim want to add? Yeah, no, those are all triggers that we can see. I mean, all of these, all prevailing wages start off at level one. But if you have education that's more than the bachelor's degree they expect, then you're going to add on another level and that you're now at level two. And let's say that the position also is a roving position that bumps you up to level three. And then let's say that you have experience that's greater than the job zone. That's going to bump you up to level four. And there are some positions where if you look at the wage guidance the Department of Labor has, if they could have jumped it up to level five or level six, they would have. But they only have four options to go. And they try to get to four as often as they are. Luckily for uh, the employer, but uh, in a way, they try to get to level four, and that pushes it up a lot of notches. And so when the employee comes in and says, give me B2 and throw in these extra requirements so that we don't get a million resumes responding to this particular position, you have to say, as the employer, wait, we need to be cautious because we as the employer don't want to be stuck agreeing to pay you a prevailing wage of double of what you're making because then the ability to pay issue at the I-140 stage could come up, which could result in a denial of the I-140 petition. And in the end, you would lose the employee anyway because when the I-140 is denied, the employee is going to be gone. And, and you're promising something that you know is not accurate. That's why it's so important to have that conversation up front to say, what are the actual minimum requirements for this position? What is what is the work the person's actually going to be doing in this position? If it's truly an entry-level position, then the requirements and the job duties will reflect that. But if it's a senior and, you know, a very high-level position where they're working with complex technologies and they're working on their own and they don't, you know, aren't supervised, they're independent and they're troubleshooting, then the wage is going to need to reflect that as well. 
Absolutely. And so, again, as we keep saying, if they come to you as an employee and demand or ask of this, you need to be very, very careful. And when they say, my friend's company is offering it, so I'm going to go to my friend's company, you may, the, as an employer, much as I hate to say, maybe you need to say that's what you need to do. Because I tell people, even though you're certainly willing to go above and beyond to help your employees and keep your best talent with you in your company, you don't want to go to jail because you are signing all these forms under penalty of perjury. And as the employer, you need to be very careful that we are being honest and accurate in our information. So I know where I'm trying to be mindful of time and we have a lot more issues to cover. Uh, let's jump to the alternate wage surveys that we referred to in the beginning. Okay, sir, certainly. That's, that's one of the options employers have. Um, when they're looking at the OES and they see their wage just doesn't really reflect what they know to be a appropriate wage for that level of that position, they can utilize an alternative wage survey. Um, now that alternative wage survey needs to be submitted with the prevailing wage determination and it needs to include the methodology of how that survey was conducted. Then the Department of Labor, after reviewing it, will decide whether they accept it or not. Okay, and so what are the kinds of factors that we look at so the factors are set out really clearly uh, by the Department of Labor, but they do it in a hidden way. It's hidden in an appendix to the 2009 guidance that they have, buried in several appendixes, appendices. Mm -hmm. So, um, but the factors are very clear. The first one is the data collection time frame. Um, the data needs to be collected within 24 months of a publication if it's a published survey or if it's based on a survey conducted by the employer, then it must be based on data that was collected within 24 months of submission of the prevailing wage request. And again, if you are using a published survey, then the publication needs to have taken place within 12, 24 months and be the most current edition of that published survey. Right, the survey also has to be within the area of intended employment. Um, generally speaking, the Department of Labor is looking for something with the MSA, the Metropolitan Statistical Area. In some circumstances, they may accept the Consolidated Metropolitan Statistical Area. Um, however, generally speaking, you want to look to the MSA for that survey. If the location of employment um, is with on the border of an MSA or a CMSA, if you're going to go that far, it may be acceptable, but keep in mind that the further out you go from an MSA, the more risk there is the Department of Labor is not going to accept it. Okay. And also to keep in mind that in terms of job description and job requirements, we need to be consistent with the offered job. We talked about the two mirroring each other, 9141 and the 9089. Uh, as an employer, you would need to demonstrate that the data represents workers who are similarly employed. And similarly employed means they are requiring similar levels of skills. And to look to see if the survey has the information about the education and training requirements for that particular job with those particular job duties, it's helpful even though it's not essential, but the more it is accurate, the more helpful it is and also to be watchful and to look for an overlap in the duty, skills, tools, certifications, and technologies. The other thing, um, Sheila, is you know sometimes you'll see Department of Labor will look at the job description that's in that survey and compare it against the OES job description. And they, in some cases, they've come back and said, okay, you may meet all the other criteria, but we think that the OES 
better lines up with your job description. So I think you're completely right. You can't overstate how much how important it is to look at the way they've framed the job description in that survey. Um, another thing, another factor is uh, cross industry representation. Um, one of the factors they list is that the data needs to have been collected across industries. And that can be tricky, especially if you're dealing with something like a hospitalist. How many industries is there a hospitalist falling into? So what you're going to look at is um, basically is there an other category? Is the is – the, um, for example, in that hospitalist example that I just gave, do they look at hospitals, medical practices, private hospitals, universities, public um, organizations, nonprofits? Is there an other category? Um, and as long as you can show some kind of cross-industry sample, then it should be acceptable. But what you can't do is get a survey that only looks at um, the insurance industry, even if you're an insurance company. You can't just get a survey that only looks at architecture firms for architects. Um, you need to have some way of showing that there is a cross-industry sampling. That can, that can be pretty tricky. And what about the size of the sample, Jim? Well, the, the size of the sample needs to... Uh, there's basic methodology of at least three employers and at least 30 workers as the minimum. Okay, and... What is this whole thing about the arithmetic mean or weighted average, Pam? It needs to have one of them. It needs either you have the arithmetic mean, which is a weighted average, or it needs to list a median wage. They prefer the arithmetic mean. But if that's not available, then the median wage is acceptable. Uh, overall, when you're looking at all these factors, the Department of Labor, they're looking to see whether the survey methodology is reasonable. They're looking at the sample size, the source, the descriptions, the employer selection. They want to make sure that it is a representative sample. And in some cases, we've seen with employer-collected surveys as opposed to published surveys, where the Department of Labor will start comparing and contrasting, where they see a variety of surveys from uh, the same um, entity that is gathering up those surveys, the Department of Labor can question the the science behind how they're coming up with that data, and they can compare them and say, we find something um, unreliable in your survey methodology. And that's going to kind of kill that survey option for you for other cases. So it's important to look at what the methodology is behind that survey. And you need to, I think Jim had mentioned it before, you need to provide that survey methodology to the Department of Labor along with the actual survey itself. Okay. And so before we go to the idea of what happens uh, in case the prevailing wage determination is not acceptable to the employer or the employee because that's the next stage uh, or the final stage before we, we try to wrap up. Uh, since right in the very beginning, Jim had mentioned that the wages as determined by the Department of Labor's database can depend on one of the three, and we discussed in fairly great detail both the OES and the alternate wage survey, and we didn't really touch a whole lot about the collective bargaining agreement other than just referring to it. If the industry or the company you're working with is large enough and has like a trade union or a union and a collective bargaining agreement, then under the Davis-Bacon Act and other laws, you as the employer don't have to worry about the OES or have to worry about the alternate wage survey because the government believes and assumes that if there is an arm's length trade union that is negotiating strong and hard for the employees, that that is somehow going to protect the U.S. worker 
uh, and the other workers in the organization. And so if a lot of times when lawyers sometimes get so nitty gritty and detailed, when we're focusing on the OES and the alternate wage survey, we actually forget that if there's a trade union bargaining collective representative, that that can actually be sufficient to meet the Department of Labor's um, standard for uh, the prevailing wage determination. Did you want to add something? No. No. Okay, good. So listen, if at the end of the day, the Department of Labor, you submit your alternate wage survey, and uh, or, or or you know you look at the OES, and after the de- de- prevailing wage determination is then issued by the U.S. Department of Labor, what are the options from the employer's point of view if there's if they're having a problem? Well, before we go into, I'd just like to have Pam, if she could mention. Now, have you seen a restrictive trend in alternative wage survey acceptance? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Simply? I mean, in a nutshell. And it's not just us. I mean, um, people were talking about it at the annual conference this year. There's definitely been um, an increasing trend from Department of Labor away from accepting the alternate wage surveys. They are looking at them under a fine-tooth comb. And things that worked six months ago are not necessarily working now. So um, just be prepared. Uh, you know, you may need to submit multiple different kinds right. of alternate wage surveys. You may need to invest in an employer, employer-provided survey, and those can sometimes be expensive. Very expensive. Right. Sometimes they're hundreds of dollars, sometimes thousands of dollars. I know we, for example, at the Murthy Law Firm, we actually purchase some of these uh, surveys for several thousands and thousands of dollars with the idea that we can use it for cases and employers and not have the have to have the employer buy those surveys for several thousands of dollars and uh, share, uh, pass on the savings and the costs to you all as employers when we file the cases for you. So working with a top-notch good lawyer just doesn't benefit you in terms of, you know, knowing the strategy and knowing the ins and outs and knowing the loopholes and knowing this hopefully saving costs at every multiple level, as well as in seeing the trends. Because if just this little, little, small little point about prevailing wage determination, we can spend close to an hour and we feel like we haven't even touched the tip of the iceberg as we've just gone over some of the really, really big issues with you, you can only imagine the level and depth of complexity involved in the PERM labor certification process um, because from the wage to the job duties to everything at every layer, you as the employer have to figure this out. And if you want to bring in good consulting uh, people as an IT consulting company or be a top-notch insurance company in the company country and focus on your core product, the only way you can do that is allow the best law firm in the world to work that you work with, hopefully, to allow you to focus on your issues. What are the other issues that we need to worry about when the prevailing wage determination is... is Right. No. So the prevailing wage determination has come back, and for some reason you don't like it. What can you do? There are a few options that you have. One of the first options, simplest options, is a redetermination request. Generally speaking, it's for simpler issues of a wrong job code or wrong wage level um, that you can then try to request a redetermination, keeping in mind your argument has to be very concise. I think there's only some, like... 260 characters or something like that to your request. But that's your first option. And then after that, if the redetermination online isn't working, your next um, is to a try a challenge to the center director and then an appeal on to the Board of Alien Labor Certification Appeals. And that's going to be for more like where... Um, Department of Labor is objecting to your alternate wage survey, but you believe that it does, in fact, meet all of the guidelines uh, that the Department of Labor has 
published, or if their analysis of the requirements does not comport with the guidelines on how wage levels should be determined. Um, it, it's keep in mind, you know, the center director challenge, you should get a decision back in a few months. But if you're going to go the route of challenging it all the way to the Board of Alien Labor Certification Appeals, it could be years. So quite honestly, for a lot of these cases where you're disagreeing about the coding, where you're disagreeing about the wage level, it may be in your best interest to go back to the drawing board, take a look at your job description, refine it so that you can better explain to the Department of Labor why it fits into one coding rather than the other, and then resubmit it. Right now- Is there a time frame? Is there a time limit? Do they have to wait any time for any of that? The six-month rule does not apply in this case? Nothing like that. They can immediately resubmit, and the prevailing wage determination process, it's about eight weeks. Eight weeks for a new prevailing wage is going to be a lot faster than three years for a Balka decision. For, for sure. Okay, so um, let's take this opportunity to thank both Pam and Jim for their sharing their comments. And as you can understand from the discussion that we've had for the last approximately 40 minutes, the prevailing wage determination is really the foundation or the keystone for the entire labor certification process. If we don't get that right, if you as the employer don't define the job properly, don't make it match on every level, make sure that the left hand and the right hand don't know what they're doing in terms of the 9089 and the 9141. You could be digging your grave for the labor certification, investing several thousands and thousands of dollars and years of time, and in the end, losing the employee because the labor cert gets denied because the prevailing wage is way above what the employer can afford or what is consistent in the market, in the marketplace out there. Um, Of course, as most of you know, the PERM is for a future position, uh, the green card itself, the entire green card process, unlike the H-1B process, which is a current job, current position. But if the individual is already in the position working in your company in that particular wage and the job duties and requirements are what the person technically is already supposed to be doing for you, and you're paying the person way below what the Department of Labor determines to be the prevailing wage for that job, they will look at that, and that will be a red flag and raise a concern for you going forward because then it shows lack of good faith and bona fides of the employer in the labor certification and recruitment process. Again, we encourage you to work with a good lawyer, and if you don't have a good lawyer, you know the best law firm in the world at murthy.com. Pam and Jim are examples of the incredible, amazing, brilliant legal team that we have here. And we at the Murthy Law Firm look forward to continuing to help you and your company as you try to recruit and retain the best talent from around the world to ensure your own success and the success of our economy and our great country. So thank you for being a part of our uh, Murthy Law Firm family and participating and making time in the middle of your day to participate in today's teleconference on prevailing wage determinations. We really look forward to taking great care of you. Have a great rest of the day. On behalf of Pam Janice, Jim McLaughlin, myself, Sheila Murthy, and the entire Murthy Law Firm family, we encourage you to continue to use the free services available through Murthy.com and the Murthy Bulletin to keep apprised of the latest trends and nothing like signing up for these free teleconferences for you as valued employers that are helping to create jobs in our economy. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you.